And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, it's found on page 1177 of your pew Bible. That's page 1177 of your pew Bible, the book of 1 Timothy. Let's go back. Let's go back in time for a moment. Go with me to the dawn of the New Testament age. There's a large, vibrant church in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith. One of, on that explosion, out of that explosion of grace to the most rebellious people in the world, there was formed the Jerusalem church. Shortly thereafter, many miles to the north, a second church is formed in Antioch, where believers were first called Christians. Whereas the Jerusalem church was at the heart of Judaism, Antioch is the gateway to the Gentile world. Now, it was from this church, the church in Antioch, that a new missionary was commissioned. His name was Paul. He wasn't an ordinary missionary, for he was also an apostle, meaning that he was someone directly ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He had seen the risen Christ and been taught by him. When a new pastor is called, we lay hands on him. We call that ordination. Some of you might remember my ordination some 15 years ago now. Well, Paul was ordained directly by the Lord Jesus himself. He received his commission, his authority from the risen Christ. And his calling, his mission, was to go to the nations. The church of Antioch recognized this divine calling on Paul and sent him on his first missionary journey. Paul traveled north into what we now call Turkey, but at the time, it was called Asia Minor. Today, Turkey is largely Muslim and has a sort of unifying culture. But at that time, Asia Minor was the linkage between East and West. It was hugely diverse, the perfect place to begin Paul's work. On that first journey through Asia Minor, Paul stopped in a town called Lystra. He met two Jewish women there. Lois and Eunice, a mother and a daughter. Through Paul's ministry, both women came to faith in Christ. Eunice had a son. His name was Timothy. And his mother and grandmother taught him the faith. Years later, when Paul went on his second missionary journey, he passed through Lystra once more. The church there told him about a young man, a young man who seemed uniquely called to ministry. Paul took that young man, Timothy, and went to Greece. We can only imagine the adventures, dangers, and joys that Timothy experienced in those years. It's not surprising, really, that he became Paul's spiritual son. Timothy's biological father was a Greek and probably never became a Christian. So the bond between Paul and Timothy was tight. At some point, Timothy went through a formal ordination. That is, he had hands laid on him 
for ministry and became what we would call today a pastor, although they may have used the word bishop or simply the word elder. Whatever his exact title, this letter was written to Timothy as he fulfilled the function of a pastor in the great city of Ephesus. This letter was written for two purposes. First, to instruct Timothy. Paul says in the middle of this letter, I am writing this to you so that, so that you will know how one ought to behave in the church. But secondly, the letter was also written to the congregation. It would have been read in the church. It confirms Timothy's calling and authority. It's as if Paul is saying, this is my true son, hear him. Both of these purposes can be clearly heard in the opening. Let's hear those opening verses again, and we'll consider today, especially verse 3. I'll ask you to stand, and for context, we'll read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do thank you for your word and how it leads us in truth. These are your trustworthy sayings. This is the tradition and deposit that has been handed down to us from the apostles. We pray that you would open our hearts and mind now to receive your word with joy and to recognize it for what it is, the very word of our living God. We pray do this work in us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was in a hurry. He was in a hurry. He desperately wanted to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Travel in those days was difficult. He did not have time for a layover in Ephesus. However, he did have a stop in a little town called Miletus, a little journey south from the big city of Ephesus. So Paul summoned the elders of the Ephesian church to Miletus for a brief meeting. The elders were happy to make the short journey. They loved Paul. The church in Ephesus had been planted by Paul He had spent about three years in Ephesus working incredible miracles and teaching day and night. 
Out of his remarkable ministry, a ministry that even the book of Acts describes as unusually powerful, out of that ministry, this church, the Ephesian church, had sprung up in one of the most important cities in the ancient world. Ephesus was the Roman capital of the region. It boasted one of the greatest temples in the world, the many-columned temple to Diana. She was their queen of heaven, the mother of all that was good, an image, they said, fallen from heaven. But the true image of God, the living image of God, had come down in the person of Jesus Christ, and all idols must be trampled. And so this vibrant church was planted in Ephesus and would soon overwhelm the lifeless idol. But back to Miletus. Paul is passing through the region. He summons the elders of this great church to meet with him in the port town of Miletus. Here are Paul's words to those elders, which are recorded in full in Acts 20. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, that is, among the group of elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. When reading this, we should think back to Jesus' own words. Remember, in John 6, when Jesus said to his disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Paul had ordained these elders himself in Ephesus, and yet he knew by revelation of the Spirit that some of them would leave the faith. Worse yet, these apostate elders were seeking to take the church with them. This is so often the case, isn't it? Don't miss this. This happens all the time. False teachers, false elders and pastors are rarely content just to depart on their own. Rather, they want to keep their power and privilege, so they seek to subvert others, to take the church with them. This was the threat that Paul foresaw by the Spirit and warned the elders of that day in Miletus. I think there are good lessons for us, which we will explore more in the coming weeks However, can I just pause to say this? Reading this story should do two things to us as a congregation right now, especially as we are training and electing new officers in our church. First, we should do our due diligence. We should train and examine men thoroughly for office. This is an obvious response to the story. However, as we go through that process and we're getting started in it right now, as we go through that process, let's also remember that even Paul did not have a 100% success rate. What I mean is that many of us can fall into the trap of thinking that if we just make it hard enough for anyone to be an officer, if we just make the bar impossibly high, we will all be safe. And yet here are men called by Paul who have become Wolves. Well, the meeting in Miletus ends much as the Last Supper. 
ended for Christ, the elders come and kiss Paul, hug him, and go back to their city. But then years later, sadly, Paul's words came true. Several elders began to subvert the faith of the congregation, just as Paul had predicted. In fact, at the time of this letter, 1 Timothy, Paul has already excommunicated two of them, turning them over to Satan. Now, Paul, in fear for the life of this church, has sent his faithful son to Ephesus to assist the faithful elders of the city and to silence the false teaching. Imagine yourself for a moment in Timothy's place. He is relatively young. He has come to the big city, and his job is to silence certain elders in the church. What does he need? He needs directions on how to do it, and he needs the authority, the authorization to do it. And that's what this letter is about. So look at the opening verse. Last time we noted that Paul begins the letter by identifying himself as one called by Jesus, an apostle, verse 1, by the command of God. And Timothy is called his true child, his true son. Unlike those false sons of the faith, those elders who had gone astray. Paul never begins his letters accidentally. His openings are always tied to what he is about to say. So he begins by reminding anyone reading the letter that he has the authority to correct the wayward elders. He has that authority directly from Christ. His authority is apostolic, foundational, non-repeatable. He has the right, as he says elsewhere in Corinthians, to lay the foundation. Others can build on it, but no one can lay the foundation again. They must either build on his apostolic work or depart from it. So Paul begins this letter very formally, even though Timothy is family. He anticipates that the elders may question whether young Timothy has the authority and experience to shepherd the church. Having laid that authority out, Paul immediately begins to instruct Timothy. Normally in Paul's letters, there's an opening section of Thanksgiving where Paul talks about his love for that church or the person he's writing to. But here, and in the book of Galatians, Paul skips the Thanksgiving part, the normal way letters were written in those days, and he jumps right into things. Both in Galatians and here, Paul is filled with urgency and concern. Both churches are on the edge of falling away, and you can feel his urgency as we begin. Today we're looking just at verse 3, but I think you'll find with me that these first verses are charged with very powerful truths that are then expanded on throughout the pastoral epistles. So today I want to slow down and make sure we get these opening ideas clear in our minds. By doing so, I think we'll set ourselves up to understand these letters and to more fully appreciate what the will of God is for his church. So a couple, I think, really profound things to notice, all in one verse, but reinforced repeatedly throughout the pastoral epistles. First, notice in verse 3, 
that Timothy is a man under authority. Second, notice that Timothy is a man with authority. And lastly, that Timothy is a man guarding authority. Under authority, with authority, and guarding authority. So, so first of all, notice with me that Timothy is a man under authority. Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Paul begins by reminding Timothy of his calling, of his calling. That is the word there in Greek. Literally, it's not the word urged. I don't know why that was chosen, but the word is translated everywhere in the New Testament, calling. Timothy has been called or urged by Paul to remain in Ephesus. The word has the idea literally in Greek of calling someone alongside to accomplish a mission or purpose. This is a really important word in the New Testament for someone who's been commissioned to fill a particular role in God's plan. That person has a calling. Now, of course, we are all called as Christians. We all have a calling in that general sense, right? God has a plan for each of us, a calling on our life. Later in these letters, Paul will tell Timothy to call, same word, all the people in the church to live godly lives, to, to respectfully urge them and call them, the whole church, to follow Jesus. However, the focus in Timothy is not on the general call on all Christians, but on the specific call to ministry. As some of you know, when the elders in our region meet, we call it presbytery. Presbyter is the Greek word, the New Testament word for elder. So presbytery is the meeting of all the elders in south central New Jersey. And then we have our general assembly once a year. That's all the elders in the nation. This year, our church, Lord willing, will actually host presbytery, and you are invited to come to that meeting. Now, when we meet together as elders as a presbytery, we talk about men who have a call who've received a call. Maybe you've heard that language. A man who has received a call is a man who's been called by a church and by the elders to perform a certain ministry. Why does that matter? Who cares? Well, it's actually really significant because the thought behind calling is that someone cannot call themselves. They can't self-authorize. For example, I did not show up 15 years ago and say, I've decided to be a pastor here. No, I had to be called, called by both the presbytery, the elders, and called by you, the local church. Timothy, then, is a man under authority. In our system of government, it's not perfect, but our system of Presbyterian government is designed to impress upon ministers this idea of calling, that they are not isolated, they are not individuals, their authority does not arrive from themselves, but they are called internally by God and externally by the church. They are men under authority. Timothy has received a calling from Paul to do what he is about to do. Again, this letter was written in such a way that Timothy could present it to the elders and have it read in the church, and it was read, and it was kept. That's how we got it today. 
the church would then know about Timothy's calling and know that it was legitimate, that he's a man under orders and under authority. He's not just shown up and appointed himself. Do you see the chain of command, the chain of command established in these opening verses? I, says Paul, I was made an apostle by the command of God, and Timothy has been sent through my calling. Well, what about today? Where does calling come from today? These are important questions. I mentioned at the beginning of our series on 1 Timothy, I mentioned a few very famous evangelical churches that have recently fallen apart scandalously. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. However, I can't help but notice that several of those churches had pastors who were self-appointed and were very open about this. I could point you locally, sadly, to another very significant and influential evangelical church has a long history of abusing its members where the pastor once again is self-appointed, in fact, was told by all the elders and pastors in his life, do not do this, you're not called to do this, and did it anyway. The New Testament emphatically and repeatedly condemns this cowboy entrepreneurial behavior. Again and again in the New Testament, people like Timothy, Titus, and others carried with them letters of commendation. They are authorized. They know themselves to be men under authority, sent out by elders and apostles to whom they must submit Timothy, then, we see right from the start, is a man under authority. But second of all, notice with me that although he's a man under authority, he is also a man with authority. With authority. Verse 3 says, remain at Ephesus, that's his calling, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The word there, charge, underline that for a moment in your mind. The word there really is command. In fact, it's the same word Paul just used in verse 1 when he said, I'm an apostle by the command of God our Savior. Exact same word. Timothy is to command that they stop teaching. Again, can you see the chain of command here that Paul's establishing? Paul is saying, my orders come from the risen Christ, and Timothy's orders and Titus's orders come from me. Timothy is there to speak with authority. You may not know this, but the Christian church had a huge fight about this about 500 years ago. It was called the Reformation. The Roman church believed that the chain of command passed from the apostles to the pope, who essentially became an apostle himself. For the Roman church, and to this day, The power to command in the church, the power of authority in the church, was easy to identify. You simply traced the line of your ordination back to the bishop, then to the pope, and then to the apostles. A Roman priest could do a kind of genealogy, you see. He could physically trace his ordination back to the apostles. And the Roman church scoffed at these Protestants, they called them. Because they had no pedigree, or their pedigree was dubious at best. They didn't have these ordination genealogies. However, the reformers countered 
that only those who maintain the teaching of the apostles can have their authority. In other words, that the line of ordination of authority was not passed down mechanically, but spiritually. The reformers often pointed out that many Roman priests at the time did not even know the Bible or had never actually read it, and that the Pope at that time was a notorious womanizer who had purchased his office through money. It's fascinating to read some of the early responses of the Roman church to Martin Luther and to note that those responses are completely at times devoid of a single reference to scripture or the apostles' teaching. For Rome at that time, power was mechanical. It was like secular Italian power. It passed from the prince to his heir and so on. Now let me ask you, what do you believe? Do the elders and pastors of the church today have a real authority over you? And if so, where does it come from? What are the limits of that authority? Also, and this is a big one, and one I would really encourage, especially parents, to think through. Should you and your family belong to a church that refuses to exercise authority in any way over its members? Does the New Testament... Do the apostles allow for a church without command, without authority? You know, in our cultural context, it's incredibly unpopular to speak of authority in the church. And I get that. Many people have been hurt by false and abusive leaders in the church. In fact, these letters, the letters of Timothy, uh, tell us about that kind of abuse. We're going to find out as we go through them, that there were elders in these churches that were targeting certain women, actually, in the church who were vulnerable and exploiting them. And of course, because we're all sinners, no matter how authentic we try to be, we're going to bump into each other. But some of us have experienced more than that, even abuse in the church. But in Ephesus, and maybe in your own life, there was real abuse, physical, sexual, financial a real betrayal of trust. For this reason, because of this, and you can understand it, many churches, many churches around us have given up entirely on membership and discipline. Not because they're terrible people, but because they've realized that if they practice authority in the church, they will lose a lot of people. So in the name of being effective and of impacting the community, So many churches have simply shelved this idea altogether. Today, in most American churches, it is literally easier to leave the church than it is to cancel your gym membership. If you've needed to cancel a gym membership, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Gyms often require you to cancel in person, right? They'll not cancel over the phone or online no matter how much you beg them. Most Americans, even in my experience as a reform minister here, believe that it is a form of tyranny to be asked by their elders to show up and talk about their decisions. Any attempt, in my experience, any attempt, no matter how gently put, no matter how many assurances I give, any attempt to even ask for a discussion is treated as intrusion and outrage. The other day, I was on the phone with an elder in the PCA, a friend of mine. He was discouraged. Another elder in his church 
had left the church over issues of style, not doctrinal issues. But that was not the most discouraging part. The real hurt that he was feeling was that this departing elder refused even to meet with the other elders to talk about his decision. His session, understand, his session was not looking to keep him there. They were not trying to trap him. They had already told him that they were willing to support him in all ways. They just wanted a conversation, and that was too much. I've been there. We've been there repeatedly as a church. We've been told many times as a session that even requesting a discussion is scandalous tyranny. Brothers and sisters, and we'll see this throughout my sermon series on 1 Timothy, at the heart of everything that is wrong today in the Church of America is this. We have turned no king but Jesus into a way of denying all authority in the church and then all authority in the family. We recognize no authority outside ourselves. We dress it up as liberty, but it is actually autonomy. Instead of one tyrant, we have thousands of tyrants. As we go through these three epistles and look at the book of Acts, we will see that a church without authority is not a biblical church as defined by the New Testament. The church of Jesus is to be a place of real accountability, of real calling, and real commanding. God knows that authority can be abused. He knows that. It has been abused. Some of us have experienced that. But God also knows that real community is impossible without real authority. Try having a family without real authority. Try having a state without real authority. Try do anything in a group without significant and real authority. A few months back, my daughter read the famous book, Animal Farm. It's the story of a farm where the animals, tired of the farmer's abusive authority, decide to overthrow him and have no authority at all. If you've read it, and I would encourage you to do so, you know how the story progresses. The heady days of independence quickly end in tyranny. The call for no authority only opens the door to a new authority far more oppressive than that of the farmer. Could it be that in demanding our total liberty at church, we've actually just turned ourselves and our families over to a crueler fate? Not just one tyrant now, but every man, woman, and child a tyrant Timothy is a man under authority, but he's also a man with authority, and he is to go to the church and to tell them, command them to stop teaching false doctrine. The apostolic voice is a voice of command, and a church that has no commanding voice is not apostolic. We'll not just see this in verse 3. You will see this in all three letters of the pastoral epistles, and all throughout the New Testament. So Timothy is a man under authority. Second, he's a man with authority. Third, he's a man called to guard authority. Notice how verse 3 ends. Timothy is to command certain people not to teach any different doctrine. That's his mission. That's the focus of his calling and authority. He's to be focused on the beliefs and practices of the church. 
In fact, in his excitement, Paul actually invents a word here in Greek. As far as we know, no one has ever used this word before. We can't find it anywhere else in Greek culture. The word you have at the end of verse 3 in Greek is heterodoxy. Heterodoxy. The ESV translates translates it different doctrine, and we might say non-apostolic teaching, false teaching. Now, not to bore you with Greek here, okay, But hetero in Greek means other or different, as in heterosexual or heresy. So Paul is telling Timothy to silence teachers of heresy, of other doctrine. And this is the focus of Timothy's mission, guarding the authoritative apostolic message. He isn't there to change the carpet color. (laughs) He isn't called to focus on the dynamic nature or lack of dynamic nature of the music. Timothy is never charged, and the New Testament never charges any minister to change the secular culture. You will never find a single place in the New Testament that describes the church or the elders as culture shapers. That is not the focus of Timothy's ministry. He is there, first and foremost, to guard the authoritative apostolic teaching. Remember in Acts 20, which I read earlier, this same calling is given to all of the elders. Paul told the elders on that day in Miletus, in that little port town, he said literally to them in Greek, bishop the flock of God. In chapter 3 of this letter, he'll say it again. The elders, he describes their office, are to bishop. The word in Greek is episcopalian, the word we get episcopalian from. You are to bishop the flock that is among you. The basic calling to guard and teach the truth comes from the apostles to us as ministers and elders today, but it was first brought up in Jesus' own great commission. Listen to Jesus' commission, his great commission of his apostles, and how it rings and harmonizes in many ways with what Paul says here to Timothy. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus came and he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. There's Jesus calling by the command of God. He's received all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Jesus is saying, I was called by my father and received all authority, and now I send you out under my authority to make disciples, to instruct people. And what I have in view here is not just a few items, Jesus says, but I have in view here the whole of the teaching. Take the whole of the teaching and disciple the people of God with it, with all of it, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Don't just get them converted and saved and then abandon them, but thoroughly instruct them in the apostolic word of God. Next time we'll see how this new doctrine, this heresy, was blowing through this church and destroying not only people's faith, but their lives. We live our lives, we'll see this more next time, we live our lives out of what we believe. So guarding that deposit, guarding that truth is Timothy's focus. Ideas always have consequences. Ideas always have consequences. And so elders and ministers in the church are especially tasked 
to guard against different doctrine and its toxic impact on our lives. So step back with me now for a moment. What do we see? As we look at verse 3, this opening verse, and really the rest of the Bible, an outline begins to form. Leaders in the church are to be men under authority, submissive to others. But they are also men with authority. They can't be afraid to stand up to wolves and lions. And lastly, they have a focus to their authority and work. Simply put, their focus is the doctrine and life of the church, what we call today the church's faith and life. But let me expand beyond just our officers. Yes, this is primarily targeted at them, at me, but it has big implications for everyone in this room. Even if you are not called to be an elder and never will be, hasn't God called you to do something similar in your own sphere? Parents, don't you guard the messages you expose your kids to? I know you do. Or what about you when you're at a Bible study with other believers and you hear something obviously false? You may not have the official authority Timothy had to silence that teaching, but you do have a duty to say something, don't you? Young people, you have the duty at times to turn off a certain show or to unfollow a certain person. Why? Because the message matters. What we believe inevitably influences our lives. So we are all called to humble vigilance and especially to guard the doctrine, the truths that animate our lives. There is no more powerful way to get at this than to come with me for just a moment back to the beginning. I have to take you back just for a moment to the Garden of Eden. Go back to the very first sin. Do you know how the very first sin began? It began with a theology discussion. You see, sin doesn't happen the way you think it does. Sin never begins with just sin. That's why in the Bible, sin is always described as a fruit. It's always the result of something else. All sin, all sin, understand this, all sin is the result of heresy, heterodoxy, other doctrine. Whenever we sin, it's because deep down we have, even if just for a moment, embraced false teaching. So when Satan sets himself up to tempt Eve, he began by doing theology with her. Our fall into sin, this whole nightmare of disease and death and war that we live in, began with a theological discussion. Satan said to Eve, has God really said? He began by bringing into question God's word. Then Satan offered a different theology. God has said this, Eve, to you because he knows that in the day you eat, you will be like God's. Do you see what he's doing? Up until that moment, Eve had a pure theology, a simple theology. God loves me. I belong to God. As I obey and trust God, God will bless me and things will go well for me. God has my best interests at heart. That was her theology. But that day, Adam and Eve embraced another teaching, a heterodoxy, 
a heresy, false teaching. And their heresy immediately manifested itself in a life of sin. And ever since then, every sin that you and I commit is rooted in lies that we believe. We tell ourselves, I can't live without this. That's why we do it, right? And God calls that heresy. He says, I am enough. I am sufficient. You don't need that thing you're addicted to. We tell ourselves, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. God says, heresy. I am someone and I will know. Every Christian is fighting this battle every minute of every day. So brother and sister, hold fast. Hold fast to Christ and the pure and clear teaching of his word. Paul said it to the Galatians twice for emphasis, as I say it now to you in closing. If even an angel, if even an angel comes with a different gospel, let him be accursed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are surrounded with false teaching, and a false teacher lies in every one of our hearts. We are constantly producing in ourselves and hearing around us narratives and ideas that are contrary to your word, contradictions of your word, contradictions of your gospel. So we pray that you would give us the spirit for the strength to turn away from these false teachings. We pray that you, by your spirit, would command these voices to be silent in our lives and that we with Timothy would cling and hold fast to the truth. Father, use even our discussions today as we spend time with each other after the service, as we meet with each other during the week. Help us to be agents of truth in one another's lives, uh, speaking against the false teaching of the world in our hearts and speaking for the pure and true gospel as it is given to us here in the apostolic word. Father, we pray that you would do that, that you would work mightily in our midst, silence false teaching, exalt those who preach your word faithfully and who hold to it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn.